Welcome to the GTB podcast for July 2021, volume 59, number 7. My name is David Fazekli and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Uh, many thanks for joining us for this podcast in which we're going to talk about the content for July's issue of DTB. Uh, we're currently recording this on the 10th of June. I've just got back from trip to Somerset, uh, exploring the Blackdown Hills and the Quantocks. James, have you been out and about? Uh, no, um, but um, hopefully soon. No, we're just just closing down our vaccination centre. We had a huge one locally at the race course and uh, we'll be doing our last vaccinations there on the 17th of June. Um, that will be us done and dusted, at least for now. And have you kept account of how many vaccines you've administered? Not recently, but I think it's above 50,000. In fact, it may be close to 100,000. Not sure. It's it's certainly a lot. We've nine practices all got together and we've done it in one great big site. So big numbers. Uh, very impressive. OK, uh, before we dive into the July issue, I thought we should just give a quick update on an editorial that we published in May in which I wrote about the need for a mandatory reporting system for pharmaceutical and medical device companies for payments made to healthcare professionals. Since then, there's been a joint meeting between the BMJ and an all-party parliamentary group for First Do No Harm that was based on the Cumberledge report, um, and that meeting called for doctors to report annually to the GMC any financial and non-financial interests. And we also gather that the government, in its response to the First Do No Harm report, wants to make it the responsibility of employers to maintain a register of interests. And we ourselves, we're calling for an independent central register uh, to which companies would have to declare similar to the model in the United States. Uh, James, what do you make of these various options? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I think looking back historically, when the Health Select Committee looked at this at that time, um, and that was, I think, supporting research from Ben Goldacre and Harriet Feldman, so I think the central register has been a thought for a long time. I have some problems my, personally with the GMC approach, which is what they're considering, I think. And that is, of course, it's just general medical committee. It doesn't include nurses or other parts of the health system. And increasingly now we are having nursing leading the management of chronic disease. And um, I think whatever sort of register that's put in place has to be one that I think will encompass all those that work in the health system. I think if we just cover doctors, the risk is that we'll miss being able to make something which will be better for future proofing. And, and you know, as we see professionals expand in, in the health system. So yes, and, and of course, employers is a tricky one because I see no one really employs me you know, I'm a GP, I'm a partner of a practice. I don't quite know how that will work. I don't know quite who I will, do I do it myself? And obviously there are consequences of that and issues around GP self-reporting. So interesting, watch this space. I think what's good is that it's clear that the all-party parliamentary group is not going to simply be happy with having issued the report last year. There's a general feeling, the consensus that they're going to keep pushing at this until something happens. Yes, I think that's a particularly encouraging thing. The, the debate is is alive again. 
and people want to make something happen. I think my concern with leaving it to doctors to report annually, um, as you say, is the issue of it doesn't capture all healthcare professionals who are responsible for using or prescribing medicines. So that's one issue. The other issue is we do know, although it's slightly different, but we do know from other experience that people who write journal articles are not good at declaring all their interests, even when asked. Um, and that may not be deliberate. It may just be people's memory. So so there, there is selective reporting. And, and then what happens when they don't declare to the GMC and then it's found out that they miss something out? Does it become a disciplinary issue? Um, I just wonder whether it could clog up the works of the G GMC. Um, and as you say, with the with the employers issue, it's very difficult because as, as a practice, yes, who do you report to? And then you're sort of you're policing your own declaration, which, which seems problematic. There, there definitely needs to be some sort of penalty for this. Um, there's no point in having something which says you must report. But actually, if you don't, it's sort of just as a wet, damp squib. It's got to be there's got to be more. There's got to be teeth to this, haven't there? Otherwise, it, it simply won't be of any effectiveness at all and yes and I, and I do wonder actually whether you need to come come from it from both sides actually you do or, or put in a system where professionals self-declare but also you have the payer having to declare as well so you have a, a a loop where you can check both the input and the output so did did the company declare and then did the recipient also declare and you can you can actually audit the outcome. Absolutely, and I think this is I think this is what happens in the states, and I think we're looking perhaps to do an article on that, aren't we? Hopefully later about sunshine and uh, the clarity of conflict of interest that goes on in the USA. Yes, experience from the states, which which will help to inform the debate debate here. Okay, well let's watch this space, see what see what happens next. So for this issue uh, of of DTB, we're going to talk about the editorial. Uh, talk about PPIs being used for throat symptoms, look at the dose of folic acid for use with methotrexate, and have a look at the case report. So let's kick off with the editorial, which you wrote, James, about chloramphenicol. Do you want to explain a bit more about it? Yeah, so this is an editorial where an odd situation has arisen. Suddenly, chloramphenicol eye drops that have been used for many, many years in the treatment of bacterial conjunctivitis have quietly been changing their summary product characteristics and are no longer licensed for use in those children under two. And this is due to the European Medicines Agency in 2015 doing some work and discovering that boron, which is used as a buffer in eye drops in animal studies, can cause uh, infertility and can actually affect the testicles of the rats well before they affect any other organs in the body. And therefore, the EMA set maximum permitted daily exposure levels of boron at, in this case, one milligram per day for those children under two. And lo and behold, we've discovered that actually chloramphenicol uh, eye drops can possibly go over that. So as a consequence, uh, this is a bit that's odd, I think, the EMA gave the manufacturers of chloramphenicol eye drops three years to change their 
wording of their summary product characteristics. So over the last three years, one by one, the companies have been doing that. And I think what brought this to a head was that suddenly pharmacists who have been doing eye drop prescriptions for patients under a scheme in some areas to cover the management of conjunctivitis have suddenly found they can no longer prescribe under those schemes because these drugs are no longer being used under license. So it's a very odd situation. And we just raised that that what's odd is that is that the clinicians involved in the management of patients have been completely left out of the loop, it seems to me. And no one has advised us that this is going on. The MHRA have been completely silent. Not a squeak has occurred until suddenly, you know, we discover that actually there is no follicle a licensed eye drops for children under two. So while there are, you know, there are other options for this age group, um, it's more about the fact that this came out of the appeared to come out of the blue, no warning, and whether MHRA didn't see it coming or uh, had other things with COVID vaccines on its on its agenda that it just lost sight of this is is not is not clear. The Royal College of Ophthalmologists gave a view. What did they say? Yes, I mean they're they're very balanced. They point out that using eye drops as you should so let's say between you know about eight drops per day even if that was fully absorbed it's actually you you are unlikely to reach the daily exposure limit for children under two so their attitude is that actually the benefits of chloramphenicol eye drops in pediatric ophthalmic practice for appropriate indications and with courses of appropriate duration outweigh the possible risks posed by boron ingestion and I think, to be honest, for, for GPs, I think what we should also be asking ourselves is, do we really need to be treating conjunctivitis at all? The Cochrane Review have looked at this several times. And at the moment, I think the latest Cochrane Review actually suggests that clump and eye drops probably do offer some benefit. It is marginal. And a lot of children get better without using any antibiotic eye drops. So I think it's a case really of us being absolutely sure we only use it when necessary. And I, and I was thinking about um, other parallels to this. And I suppose one of the other parallels to this is the use of gentamicin drops in ears, where there's been a lot of concern about ototoxicity. And I think most GPs are acutely aware that you've got to be really careful with using gentamicin eye drops in ears. And you must look back and check that patients haven't had multiple courses of them. So once again, there's an area there where, yes, there's a there's an issue. But if you're careful, you know, it's it's something that you can still use, but just taking great care. But I, Yes, I agree. I think the um, and, and what seems to be strange is that, that you could give this preparation for a week and you might almost exceed or just exceed the boron limit for that week but for the other 51 weeks of the year the child is not getting any boron and therefore you think well is is one week's worth of boron really going to be that harmful but you know we are as, as they say where we are with the, with the official advice I guess the difficulty is how do you explain this to parents? I think that's the biggest concern is that you know you're going to prescribe something and someone's going to come back to you and say, well, hang on a minute, it says in here that this is not to be used for children under two because it can cause infertility. So that is, a, you know, it means we've then got to make sure we discuss that with parents at the time. Otherwise, we're going to have some very angry, upset people wondering what the hell we're doing. 
and alternatives if you were if you need to, absolutely need to treat yeah well this is where we're left in the dark because gentamicin eye drops actually also contain boron but no one's talking about them you can do things like fusithalmic but that's extremely expensive it's it's 35 pounds a tube now and of course the risk is that we're going to use uh, other second or third line drugs that perhaps we need to be keeping back for those patients with significant conditions who suffer from microbial resistance. So I think that's, I think the issue here for, for me personally, and I think for a lot of GPs will be not, what do I reach for instead? It's probably more a case of, right, I'm going to be much more discriminatory about who I treat and just discuss this issue with the parents at the time. Because let's be honest, getting dropped into under two-year-olds i mean i've had four children and i never got past a day's treatment doses just not wasn't worth it you just had a screaming child and particularly chloramphenicol eye ointment which i should have mentioned doesn't contain boron and therefore is another option you just end up with ointment all over eyelashes and all over faces every treatment option has its positives and its negatives and i think this is just another case of that and as we've always gone on and said you know there's no such thing as a safe drug just safe doctors and or prescribers so i think it's important that we just always make sure we recognize that okay well perhaps we'll come back to this if the mhra or other bodies publish something in the in the near future i just wanted to touch on a select article that we've published this month that looks at a study it was published in the bmj looks at a study on the use of ppis for persistent throat symptoms just thought it was worth highlighting this one partly because this is probably not an uncommon presentation in general practice i just wondered what your take on it was yeah this is this is interesting because certainly over my professional life this is definitely a pendulum that swung one way and now seems to be swinging the other so this is i think a lot of us have discovered or by referring patients with persistent throat symptoms to ENT surgeons we've discovered that actually a lot of them would come back saying oh this patient's got reflux and give them uh, a PPI to treat it and I think you know certainly in my experience whether it's a placebo effect or not there are some patients who definitely seem to improve with it but the studies that have been done on it have been very variable and this is a probably I think the biggest study that we've seen so far that it was only 346 adult patients and these are patients that were seen in ENT outpatients which I think was a was actually probably a major weakness in this study but basically they were randomized to PPI or placebo and they used a reflux symptom index to see what their symptom scores were like and at I think it was they looked at the symptoms at 16 weeks and um, 12 months and basically um, there was no appreciable effect of the PPI in these patients. Yes both groups improved but yeah. no difference between them. No no yeah exactly and I think the weakness here for me and I, I would was and they demonstrated this 20% so one in five of the people who were looked at had already taken a PPI in the previous 12 months and I do wonder whether actually this might have been a self-selected group because I think most GPs now have clocked that actually a PPI can be quite helpful in patients with a persistent cough or other throat or voice symptoms and I think they might have already tried it and then only refer patients up who actually have failed to respond to a PPI. I mean there was also an issue with 
the numbers, although it was, as you say, one of the largest studies, they did find that they had to analyse a subgroup of people who submitted or completed the data collection appointments on time. Um, so that was a smaller cohort that they analysed, which was smaller than the power calculation had suggested. They did then go back and look at the whole cohort and, and the results were similar. So there is something about the numbers um, and whether the study was sufficiently powered for this outcome, particularly, say, with 20% who'd already had a, a PPI. Um, um, and their bottom line was what? That, that PPIs offer very little benefit as empirical treatment. Exactly. Yes, you're right. I think um, they, they needed 266 participants, but actually of the 346, only about 262 actually started treatment and only 184 reported taking 90% of their assigned treatment. So they, they sort of ended up with a much smaller cohort, I think, than they had hoped for at the beginning. But certainly something about whether you know, PPIs are or should be the first first port of call for persistent throat symptoms or or actually, I mean, how, how do you differentiate who to refer and not to refer? I, I think this is difficult because I think the the adverse effect of giving this a try is actually quite low, isn't it? I mean, I think um, PPIs are not expensive. Their side effect profile is pretty good. So are we simply going to refer all these patients up and make them wait six months to see an ENT surgeon who may not have read the paper and will still try them on a PPI? Or do we actually in the interim trial it anyway? And I think most GPs will be pragmatic. So I think what I think it probably means we have to do is be much more discriminatory. Let's take a really good history. Let's really see if we can tease out those where reflux does seem to be a likely underlying cause of this but uh, whether we should simply no longer even try this that's a more difficult uh, question to answer I think. And for me this was a good example of a paper which you think is going to give you a very helpful steer or answer but actually the more you dig into it the more questions it raises. Absolutely it, it was exactly the right study to do it just wasn't done quite right enough to get us where we wanted to get to, which is a shame. Okay, thank you. Um, the main article this month was something I know that you've talked about in the in the past and we're keen to look at, which is folic acid uh, and the dose you should use with, with methotrexate for uh, people with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, do you want to just talk about the, sort of the key issues and main highlights? Yeah, this, this is an issue that has bugged me and it's bugged me because you know, send a patient to three different rheumatologists uh, for methotrexate and you'll get three different regimes for how they should take their folic acid. So we're really delighted that Diane Bramley from Guys and Thomas's wrote this article looking at the evidence base behind the use of folic acid in patients on methotrexate, pointing out that it does reduce adverse effects, probably because of the antagonistic effect of methotrexate on the folate pathways. And really demonstrating that it seemed to me that if you look at the studies, there have been loads of studies done. And the sort of outcome, I think, is that anything above more than sort of five milligrams a week um, as a single dose or one milligram daily probably has no additional benefit. But actually, five milligrams either before or after the dose of methotrexate or one milligram daily, except on the day of your methotrexate, seems to be some evidence for efficacy. But I, it's surprising how little evidence there is for this, given how many patients are taking folic acid with their methotrexate. Yes, and that's what struck me was the sort of 
huge variation amongst amongst the trials, but also how limited the trials were. Some interesting points that, that, that struck me you know, answering the question, does it reduce, does folic acid reduce adverse effects? And as you say, yes, clearly it does. The other interesting one was, does folic acid have an impact on the efficacy of methotrexate? And there was some suggestion that in some trials, patients taking folic acid ended up on slightly higher doses of methotrexate, but but manageable. I mean, it wasn't a huge issue, but they just needed slightly more. Yeah, that that was interesting, wasn't it? I think that we quoted from two randomized controlled studies. They, this was actually a post hoc analysis of them, but it did seem that taking a folic acid supplement reduced the probability that the methotrexate achieved a level of improvement that they had set the 20%, the ACR, American College of Rheumatology, 20% improvement criteria. So it seemed like that might have been reduced in those patients taking folic acid. So interesting, because that had never even crossed my mind that there might actually be an element of the folic acid actually interfering with the action of methotrexate. So yes, some interesting stuff. And I think what was also interesting for me that actually, I think where it left me thinking was, Actually, if you've got a patient that you're seeing as a GP who's taking folic acid and they're still getting gastrointestinal symptoms, for example, it might be worthwhile saying, well, okay, you're currently taking your five milligrams the day after or two days after your methotrexate. Why don't try taking it two days before? Or, you know, if if they're struggling with that, you know, what about trialing one milligram a day apart from on the day that you take it? That's, you know, the evidence base is the same for all those sorts of approaches. And it may be that you may just find that actually tinkering with that is going to actually help this patient get their, their rheumatological disease under control. Because that's the important thing here. The important thing here is methotrexate is actually an exceptionally useful drug in the management of the inflammatory arthritis. And when I think of how that's changed over the last 30 years, you, know, you just do not see 70-year-old patients with the hands destroyed by rheumatoid arthritis in the same way we used to and that is because of the effectiveness of these drugs and actually if we can get patients on it and tolerating them so much the better and the particularly um, good news from from a few of the studies was that folic acid certainly improves adherence and continuity of treatment um, and as you say with with the effectiveness of, of methotrexate and the, avoiding the need to go on to more in, invasive treatments and this is a particularly good news story. Exactly although interesting enough of course folic acid is not licensed for this indication we should point out. Absolutely. Classic, classic situation but there we are. And I don't suppose anyone will ever license it. No but, I'm um, sure they won't. <laughs> okay thank you very much and, and finally uh, let's quickly talk about the case report. Uh, severe hypophosphatemia following bisphosphonate treatment um, again, main points? Yeah, 76-year-old woman, lots of investigations done because they had concerns and by chance they discovered she had a wedge fracture of T12, I think it was. So her risk for osteoporotic major fractures was high. Her, actually, her DEXA scan wasn't too bad. She had osteopenia on the DEXA scans. But if you actually, in fact, did this, I, as much as I could, I stuck her through the FRAX system to see where she sat and she sits in the high risk. So about a 30% 10-year risk of a major osteoporotic fracture. So quite rightly, she was started on alendronate. And basically, suddenly, four months after starting it, she developed this significant severe hypophosphatemia which resolved on stopping 
the uh, alandronic acid, but then reoccurred when they restarted it some months later. As it presumably then didn't didn't continue. Exactly, and, and I think what's interesting, I think they put her on denosumab, didn't they? And I think interesting enough, she got a, a mild reduction in her phosphate levels on denosumab, but it resolved without any action. I mean, I think for me, the, the sort of points that came out was one, would I know or recognize hypophosphatemia if it slapped me in the face? And the answer is, I'm not sure I would. These patients get a, usually have other things going on like a critical illness or malabsorption. Malabsorption is the typical cause of hypophosphatemia. There are some very rare genetic disorders as well. Um, but I think she presented with sort of leg pain, very severe levels of hypophosphatemia can cause bone pain, rhabdomyolysis, arrhythmias, convulsions, con confusion. Um, but she didn't actually present with those. And in fact, the finding was on a routine blood test that they were doing as part of her care. So interesting, not something that um, I've seen much of. Phosphate is one of those quiet chemicals that sits in the background and we sometimes see it with renal patients, but it's not something we tend to look at much in general practice. And also seems quite rare. I mean, I, I again looked at the SPC and it talks about asymptomatic mild and transient decreases in serum phosphate seen in 10% of patients. Of, or this is people taking alandronic acid. So it is known to happen. The MHRA drug analysis print only three cases of hyperphosphatemia and that's out of 8,300 reactions since 1995. So again, it's, it's not common. No, and I think, but I think it's, it's an interesting one. I think, I think the management of uh, osteoporosis is an issue for us, I think, because it's, uh, it's a serious condition. It has a huge impact on patients, not only their mortality rate, but also in their quality of life. It's really important we get this right. But the drugs, it feels to me at the moment, can have a sting in the tail, and we just have to be really alert for that. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave us a rating or a comment. Uh, you can do this on the iTunes site, and there's a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, email us at dtb at bmj.com. Many thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us for August podcast in due course. Music